the first Sunday of 2012, and I'm glad to be here. Uh, yesterday morning, yesterday morning, I was scraping ice off my car in Chicago. Today, I'm going to be in the sunshine and 80 degree weather. We are in a good place. <laughs> Hundreds of our church people are away, but many visitors are here. And just let me tell you, this is a good place to live. So you might want to come back and stay with us longer and not just for a parade or a football game. But I'm really glad that all of you are here. I have really good friends from Wichita and St. Louis. Pastor and Mrs. Mark Frizz right back here. Pastor and Mrs. Mike Andrus and Jan, his wife, right back here. These are dear friends, so you need to just surround them at the end. Especially Mike can tell you way too much about me. Our statement of faith that we worked on uh, for many years in the Evangelical Free Church, he and I were in a small group that worked on that, and he helped put the commentary together and has planted I don't know how many churches in St. Louis and in Wichita. I mean, many. So this is, these are great people, just to tell you that. All right, not perfect yet, but... But, but great people. All right. Uh, 2011 is over. I, I've just been thinking about it. Uh, certain thoughts come to my mind about 2011. Um, gridlock among Washington politicians. Political turmoil elsewhere. Uh, Egypt, uh, Syria, Libya, and a gridlock in Washington. Uh, but our troops coming home from Iraq. That's good. Here with JPL, uh, the Atlantis Lodge. Uh, perhaps not a, another one for a while. Uh, Tea Party movement, Occupy movement, uh, Conrad Murray, Amanda Knox, uh, Casey Anthony, uh, Anthony Wheeler, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Rod Blagojevich. Uh, perhaps the most lasting impression of 2011 for me, uh, the tsunami in Japan. The enormous impact upon a country I love. Uh, hundreds losing their lives. So the first message I'm going to be preaching in 2012 is new life and a new year. Many of us think we need a new year without all those mistakes in it, kind of like uh, Anne of Green Gables used to say. But I'll tell you what I really wanted to call the message. Uh, becoming more heavenly minded. Uh, I didn't call it that because I didn't think any of you would show up for that sort of a message. Uh, most of us don't think that being heavenly minded is all that great. There's this maxim that we can be too heavenly minded so that we're no earthly good. You know that, don't you? Many people think that churchgoers are way too heavenly minded so that we ignore the real life problems of this world. Things like trafficking and, and gangs and, and poverty and the issues that we face around here with education and in our urban area. Um, thinking that when you go to church, all we want to do is ignore those things and think about heaven. Well, let me just tell you up front. I think that the Bible, when it talks about being heavenly minded, is talking about something very, very different. In fact, I sometimes have wondered where this notion of being heavenly minded, of being boring and not real to life, ever got its start. I've been researching that this week, and some people say it goes back to these famous illustrations that Gustave Doré did of John Milton's Paradise Lost. Uh, I found one of them. You know, this whole notion that when you think about heaven, you think about angels with wings, uh, f with harps, uh, floating on clouds. Uh, you know, atheists sometimes say that the very thought of that bores them to death. Um, 
And, and it does bore me to death, too. And many cartoons have been written about that. One of my favorite ones is this one from Gary Larson, the, uh, the old far side. The guy floating on a cloud. If you can't read it, he said, I, I wish I'd brought a magazine. <laughs> What am I going to do up here? And I'll tell you, now that I've been here four and a half years in Southern California, I think this notion of being heavenly minded is especially unattractive to Southern Californians. Because we love life in this world. We, we love our mountains. We love our beaches. We love our sunshine. We, we love our parades. We love our entertainment. And the very phrases about things that we think are good are things like uh, that person really has his feet on the ground. Uh, we, 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 you've got to get down to earth. Or I like a person who really uh, deals with life where the rubber hits the road. All, all of these are viewed as very positive things. They talk about people who are in touch with what's happening in this world. So I've thought about that. That's why I didn't put that title out here. I thought nobody would show up. I think a lot of our people must have gotten wind that I was going to talk about this today. But I'm glad you didn't. And you've got to stick with me on this. With all of our culture's emphasis on, on thinking about things in this world, you come to church, and the text that Lisa reads from us, from Colossians chapter 3, and especially verses 1 through 4, twice tells us that we are to set our minds on things above. And far from that being something that has no relevance to this world, those thoughts flow straight into some of the most straightforward teaching about how to live life well in this world that you find in the entire Bible. In fact, throughout the scriptures, it tells us that you and me, setting our minds on things above is the key to living well in this world. That, that if you and I, January 1st, 2012, will become more committed to obeying this, setting our hearts and our minds on things above, then we are going to find that our lives are changed in such positive ways. Uh, that people who are heavenly minded, understood biblically, are the most earthly good. Find that you have the most freedom from obsessions. Have the ability to love people more. Don't have to get bitter when things are, are tough. Or filled with despair when we lose things. Don't you want to learn something about that? Well, whether you do or don't, that's what we're going to talk about. So first, I think we need to ask this question. What does it mean to be heavenly minded? And looking at verses 1 and 2 of Colossians 3, set your hearts on things above where Christ is. And the biblical notion of setting your hearts is all that we are as people. All, set your hearts on things above and then particularly set your minds, what you think about, what you focus upon, on, on things above, not on earthly things. See, this, this notion of setting your hearts and our minds on things above has to do with an intentional choice about what we're going to desire the most in the coming years. It, it really isn't primarily talking about things like uh, just, okay, I've got, I'm supposed to set my mind on things above. Okay, I'll think about heaven. What are we going to eat when we get there? Uh, because we, I do believe we're going to eat in heaven. You know, Jesus in his glorified body ate fish. So you who are chefs, in our, I think we're going to have some great food there. And I don't think, Jeremy, I'm going to wake you up here on the front row. Um, 
I don't think it tells us primarily that we have to think about, I wonder what kind of music we're going to have up there. That we're going to have music up there. I don't know how God's going to get everybody to enjoy the same. I don't, I think he's going to have us focus. But anyway, all that's to say. That's not primarily what it's talking about. It's talking about what we fix our hearts and minds on. What we long for the most. You notice verse 4. Christ becomes our life. So before trying to give you an answer, let me tell you what, what is the foundation for being able to do this. You notice it says, since you have been raised with Christ. It's telling us that when you and I become followers of Jesus, we have an experience that changes our lives. Since we have been raised with Christ. So I've got to ask you whether you have ever had that experience, that when we trust Jesus to save us from our sins, and we make this choice, I'm not going to live for myself anymore, but for him who died and rose again. I'll follow him as my Lord. That that experience, he says, since you've been raised with Christ, is going to change the way we live in the here and now. And he puts it in verse 4, that Christ becomes our life. That, do you notice how complete that this, this notion about having Christ becoming our life is? I'll just show it to you. Verse 1, when you follow Jesus, you're raised with Christ. Uh, verse 3, uh, when, when you follow Jesus, you die with Christ. Uh, verse 3 again, when you follow Jesus, you are hidden with Christ. And verse 4, when you follow Jesus, you will appear with Christ. See, it's another sermon about Jesus. Uh, every time you come to Lake Avenue Church, it's another sermon about Jesus. But here it just tells us that, that Jesus becomes the very heart of our entire beings, our past, present, and future. Uh, since you have been raised with Christ. The, the idea here is Jesus, after he experienced death and was resurrected from the, the dead, ascended to the Father and now is at the right hand of the Father. That is a place of belonging, of intimacy. And it's telling us that when we follow Jesus, we have that same sense of belonging. We are on the right hand of the Father with Jesus as our advocate. Since that's happened, that you're in the family of God, knowing God is Abba, as your, your beloved Father, since you died with Christ, when, when He died for sin, He died in our place, so, so that God treats us as if we had paid the penalty for our sins. What Jesus did is applied to us. It's not that we have to say, okay, I'm going to try to live well enough, but instead... We are loved because we are in Christ. Do you see that? We have died with Him so that we can have life. You are hidden with Christ. Uh, you know, we, in, in Christmas season, uh, we sang that great Wesley carol almost every time in, in which in Hark the Herald Angels sings, you have, you have this phrase, a veiled in flesh the Godhead see. See, when Jesus was here... He lived the way we're supposed to live, but there was still something veiled. The totality of his glory was not seen as he was born in a manger. There was a hiddenness about him. And so in the same way, when you and I follow Jesus, there's something new about us. God's spirit comes within us. We, we become the children of God, but there still is something hidden about us. We all basically have the same physical appearance, don't we? Well, we can clean up a little more, but still. We also retain much of the same personality. There's something hidden about us that in Christ as it was with Him. But when Christ comes, verse 4, when He appears, 
He, he will come in great glory and majesty. Read Revelation chapter 1. And we will appear with him. We will be seen to be who we are. Those who are children of the eternal God. You say, so since this is true, I, I just described what, what's supposed to happen to us when we follow Jesus. Since this is true, our lives should be different. Set your minds on things above. So what on earth does that mean? Uh, two, two things. The first is not as important as the second, but I, I think this is important. I think it means that you and I, when we gather, we need to take time to meditate, reflect upon all that it means to be in Christ. We need to take time to have communion and to think about what it means that he died so that I don't have to. We need to think about our new identity as those raised with Christ, knowing God, the eternal God, as our personal Father. We need to take time to reflect upon that. And what that should do for us is that it should turn us from people who think, well, I've got to have, I'm entitled to this in this world, to people who are just grateful. Because if we focus on things in this world, we, we focus on what we don't have. Or how disappointing that what, we got what we wanted, it wasn't as good as I thought it would be. But when, when we've met Him, we know that what really matters cannot be taken away. And I think we need those moments where we pull aside, set our minds on what has happened now that we are in Christ. That's what I've tried to do already to help us begin to think that way. But second, and I think much more specifically, what he's talking about is that we then must intentionally orient our thinking around these eternal realities. See, because once you come to know Jesus, you and I know that this world is not all there is. That gives us a realism that makes us able to handle what happens here. So that if we're living for something in this world, let's say a relationship, if I could only marry that person, or, and then we get into that relationship and that person isn't all that perfect, we're so disappointed but, but once we know that not only God is God, then it means that we don't have to expect perfection out of any person or any job, if we lose it, or any experience in this world. I mean, I mean we're saddened when tough things happen, when, when we lose a job or we lose a material possession. But we're not in despair. You see, when you, when you set your mind on eternal things, uh, you're disappointed when a friend or family member lets you down. But you're not shocked, right? And you're not in despair. You're not overwhelmed. Or as Paul would put it elsewhere, when a friend dies, as so many of us have experienced in this past year, uh, we have sorrow. But Paul would put it, it's not a sorrow without a hope. Because we have come... We've come alive again and, and we're born again to eternal realities. We have a new identity because we belong to God's eternal family through faith in Jesus and we've experienced something that cannot be taken away. Is, is that clear? I've been trying to think, what is that like? What is that like in this world? There's nothing else like it. But the closest illustration I could come to from my life is this. When, after many years of being a, a, a local church pastor... I was asked uh, to become the president of Trinity International University and especially of its seminary, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. That, that was my alma mater. 
Do you know what that meant? That meant many of the people that I now had authority over had been my mentors. I'm just telling you, that took a a different way of looking at things. For them, for sure. (laughs) And for me as well. Now, after I'd been in that job for just a couple of months, my former advisor, Dr. Walt Liefeld, great New Testament teacher, he came in to speak to me. He said, on behalf of several of the senior members of the Divinity School faculty, and he said something like this to me, we want you to know that we are aware of the fact that whereas we were once your teachers, you are now our president. Whereas we once gave you your grades, you now set our salaries. (laughs) And he came in and he said, we are officially declaring to you today that we accept this change and we will support it. Then he turned to me and he said, now as your brother in Christ, I tell you that you must accept it. And you must lead our school in the light of this new identity and this new role that God has given to you. I have never forgotten it. It took an intentional reorienting of my thinking to perform that new calling. Do you see that? And that's what the Bible is saying to us today. For all of our lives, we had a certain identity and a certain way of looking at life and a way of living. Then we meet Jesus. And since that happens, and He becomes our Lord, we now have to rethink everything that's important in this world in the light of that new reality. We're children of God, raised with Christ, to full membership in the family of God. We once lived, like the whole world lives, thinking that that we had to live for more pleasure or money or success, especially here in Southern California. But now we know there are eternal values. Since this is true, set your hearts and minds on things above. Do you see that? Now that takes me to the second question. It's a little bit of moving away from the text, but I, I had to address it. Why do we have to be heavenly-minded if 2012 is going to be the kind of year that God would have us to have? And simply stated, because you and I were made for things above. We are human, which means we were made in the image of God. We were not made to live well when we set our minds and hearts on temporary things. My little Sheltie might be able to live well, living for its next meal. But that is not going to give me the life that God intended me to have. Again, I was trying to think about an illustration of this. And and the one that came to mind, I thought of a thousand, but I'll just give you one. In 1998, Tom Brokaw wrote this best-selling book called The Greatest Generation. I wonder if any any of you ever read that? It it was about generations of Americans that were born in the early uh, 1900s. Like some of you were born, although you look very young today, I'll just let you know. He talked about that generation as being a generation that had uh, survived the Great Depression of the 1930s, 
went on to gain great victories in World War II, and then came back to the United States and just were willing to courageously take risks and built the greatest businesses and, and different things here in the United States. Brokaw would write, it is, I believe, the greatest generation any society has ever produced. These men and women fought not for fame and recognition, but because it was the right thing to do. And when they came back, they rebuilt America into a superpower. Now, many historians and sociologists disagree with Brokaw, but I think he made some sound points. Let me tell you a couple of them. One, he said that this generation's survival of the Great Depression freed them from thinking that life consists of material things. They had gone through a long period where they didn't have them, and they still had a life, and that changed things. And the second point that he made was that the war had forced them away from the comfort of living in their own hometowns and had placed them in other parts of the world in the midst of huge challenges. And, and they had overcome what had seemed to be insurmountable obstacles in the war. They had seen the depths of evil in places like Nazi concentration camps. And, and their eyes had been opened in this world to more than they could have ever imagined if they had just stayed in their, in their neighborhoods. Uh, Brokaw said that people commented when these people came back from, from those other countries that there was something different about them. But they had more courage. They looked at their own communities in the context of a much greater and larger world. They had become people who cried more and laughed more. There were people who didn't have to hold on so tenaciously to small material things, and so they were able to take big risks and start businesses. And you know, within the church, this was the generation of the Billy Grahams and the Charles Fullers and the, and the, and the Bill Brights and the Ralph Winters and people in our church. This was the generation that even through tough times sent out missionaries to carry the gospel where it never had been. They sent them out in droves. As Brokaw would write, they were more generous and sacrificial than before. Most of them had seen people die for them. They had learned that evil, no matter how great it might be, would eventually be defeated. And he wrote, they have seen fires quenched. They have seen great battles won. They could not be stopped by small fears nor bound by petty things. They lived in the light of a bigger life experience. You still with me? Take that and multiply it countless times. And you'll understand what Paul is getting at right here. We meet Jesus, and you and I, Jesus was, are born again. We come alive to another world. Brothers and sisters, you and I have seen the fact that the sinless Son of God died for us. We know that even though there is still evil in this world, that the eventual defeat of evil has been declared that it's only a matter of time until God prevails. And this changes us. Or it should change us. Because we are made in God's image. It's what you and I were made for. If you haven't been raised with Christ, you go to a funeral service and you've got to focus on things in this world. I hope the embalmer did a good job. It doesn't look very natural. 
Oh, those aren't as nice of we on those things. But the big issue, is there a life beyond this life? You're almost afraid to talk about it. And we talk about it. Because we know that, that we've been raised with Christ. Death has been defeated. We know that if God is for us, who or what can be against us? And I'll just tell you this. Only when our hearts and minds are set upon a much greater world can we live with greatness in this world. It's only when we set our hearts and minds upon a greater world that you and I can live with any kind of greatness in this world. We'll be consumed by petty, temporary, material things. Any other amens? Uh, All right, three, because we've got to get to communion. What difference does it make? Look at verse 2. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. So the Bible gives us a twofold application, one negative, one positive. The negative, an intentional decision not to put our hearts and minds on the temporary material things. Uh, let me just tell you, this is what you and I are going to naturally do. It's a part of what happened when we left God out of our lives. We often start to think the only thing to live for is here and now. Our natural inclination is that we're going to be drawn to think, I've got to experience something here and now. I've got to have this. I can't lose that if I'm going to really live. It's going to happen all the time in 2012. We're going to need this intentional decision not to do that. And Paul talks about in verses 5 through 11 what the life looks like in his world if you set your mind on earthly things. And it's not all, all that much different from what it would look like in our world. <laughs> wanting to have more and more sexual pleasure, greed, wanting to have more and more material possessions, and personal success. Setting our minds on those things. So if that's what we're supposed to do, not to do so, can I give you a, a few diagnostic questions so that you can determine if there are some places where you might be vulnerable. Maybe you want to take out a sheet of paper, if you can find one, and a pen or a pencil, or pull out your phone on your memo pad. Let me ask you a few questions. What things in this life, if you lost them or could not have them, might make you feel that you don't really have a life left? What are those things in this world? I can't complete that degree. I can't get that promotion. If I can't find that job, I lost that person. That if you didn't have them, might threaten the shalom and peace that God wants you to have in this coming year. Make note of those. The other question might be something like this. What things... Do you dream about having, dream about experiencing, dream about achieving when you have time to stop and dream? I'm trying to get at the deep affections of our hearts. Many of these things might be good things. But I'm just telling you, if they become the main desires of your heart, they will turn into idols. They will come into your affections And try to fill up the place that only God can fill. And even, I'll just tell you, even if you attain them, and even if you possess them, they will not fulfill you. Paul says that if we will live life to the full, 
you must identify what those things are and then refuse to set your mind on them. You can know, I'll just tell you, you can know you're in trouble. Uh, if you find yourself, something happening, and then you find yourself becoming just angry or despondent or afraid because you don't have that. The counselors who are here, aren't those the three biggest emotions that often happen that you have to deal with? Despondency or, or deep discouragement that leads to depression. Anger about something someone has done or something you've lost. And fear or anxiety. Very often, not always, because sometimes it's physiological, I know that, but very often those emotions are caused by us losing something in this world that has become the object of our affection, our idol. Or we've gotten it and it wasn't what it was cracked up to be. So that's an intentional decision not to set your minds there. And then the positive is to take time, consciously and intentionally, to set your minds on the things that honor Christ. I'll just, I'm going to tell you, this will take a conscious, intentional act of the will. Maybe it's just me, but I'm just telling you, the moment you say, that's what I'm going to do, you find yourself, your mind drifting and you start focusing. Even in the life of the church, if only we could get that one settled. Oh, the, the thing that will really make this good is if we far exceed the giving to the budget. You know, all these things can creep in. It takes this intentional decision to say, Lord, you are my Lord. So what would you have me to focus on today? How would you have me to live today? And where this will lead? If we learn each day to set our minds on things above is what you find in verses 12 through 17. As God's people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Forgive because you can forgive now as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love. And in there, in verse 17, so that whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Do you see what I was getting at when I said that if you and I can learn what it means to set our minds on things above, it'll make it possible for us to love more. We won't be so fresh. We won't have to worry as much. Because what really matters cannot be taken from us. We won't have to become so bitter. Um, a few weeks ago, our Lake Avenue students uh, were at retreat. You remember we showed a video of that and visitors, you didn't get to see it. It was so powerful. Our students here, hundreds of them, went to retreat and they took the retreat to take time to try to think what were they setting their minds on. Some of these students might be here today. Um, what things were becoming idols? They, they wrote them down. They had much more time than we have. They wrote them down. Do you remember the, the, the video that we showed, showed them pasting those with stick em notes, I think, up on a wall, the things that they said, those are the places I'm vulnerable. And then the powerful thing for me was we saw them together turn away from that wall and turn toward the cross. That's what I want us to do at the end of our service.
hopefully mentally and perhaps even in writing, you've made note of those things that in this coming year could become your life. I want to make sure that you turn those things over to God to make sure that as good as they are, that they are not in His place. And we're going to receive communion. Turning toward the cross. Remembering the one who died for us and then was raised for us so that we might truly be able to live. On that evening that he was betrayed, uh, he first took the bread, he broke it, said, this is my body and it is given for you. What I am going to be doing can be reckoned to you if you will be in me, if you will place your trust in me. Whenever you gather, do this in remembrance of me. And then, he, then he took the cup, his shed blood, poured out for us. He said, this is, this is a covenant established in my blood that those who apply what I'm going to do in giving my life to their lives now will not be forgotten in heaven. Do this in remembrance of me. So we're going to do that now. I would like to have our stewards come to the tables. On this January 1st, we didn't have many of our people who serve us are away. Uh, so we, we're going to go to the different tables. We have them in the, the balcony. We have them in the middle of the worship center also, and we have them here at the front. Uh, as you come, take the elements, the bread and the cup. Uh, and if you're visiting, this is the Lord's table. So if you know the Lord and you're ready again to bring him into the center of your being and to go from this place ready to walk in newness of life, then come and receive with your brothers and sisters. So we'll come, hold on to those elements, go back to your place where you're sitting, and then we will receive them together. I'll come back up. Let me lead us in prayer. Father, as we take time to think about focusing on things in this world, temporary, material things. But we know we all need to hear this. Every time we gather in this place, we need to, to hear that, that you must be God. Nothing in your face, nothing in your place. So Father, we take time, even now, to remember what makes it possible for us as sinners to be known as the children of the Holy God that Jesus, the sinless one, lived the life we should have lived, but none of us has, then was willing to die the death that we should have to die, but don't have to, so that in Christ we can have forgiveness of the past and a new life that cannot be taken away. We take time, as Jesus commanded us to, to remember. Do your work in our lives in these moments. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.